coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for People Who Can't Afford Hamilton. Today, part two of our bonus episode, So Help Me I Swear, Presidential Sketch Comedy and Discussion about Transitions and Inaugurations. The discussions and talkbacks you will hear on today's episode were recorded on December 30th, 2020. So we know there have been some news events that have happened since then. Here's a great big fat swing and a miss from Herbert Hoover's inauguration. Through liberation from widespread poverty, we have reached a higher degree of individual freedom than ever before. Hoover is thy name is Hoover. What's the date on that? Is that 28? Like March 4th, 1929. Yeah, I would have been oh, right before the crash, but uh, not by much. Nope. Oh, boy. And Hoover had the audacity to lecture Roosevelt on oh. economic policy. Numerous times. Oh my gosh. Names so- that he called Roosevelt during the during the election and then after. Oh. What what was that? Oh, just the names, the names that he publicly called Roosevelt. What were You go on, Jill. Oh. Such as. <laughs> oh, um, I think one Do of tell. them. <laughs> 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 um, I think one of them was, it, it, he called him to the Washington Post an ignorant little boy, which I love because Roosevelt. They were eight years ah, apart. Right. Wise, yeah. <laughs> like, I think that's my, my personal favorite. Well, there I know of the dinner that uh, Hoover threw, where he actually tried to dissuade FDR from taking from implementing the New Deal, and then there was a subsequent meal with the families that went so badly that one of FDR's sons wanted to slug Hoover in the (laughs) nose, and I think that's a direct that's a pretty direct quote. If he, if Hoover insulted Eleanor, I am going to go desecrate his grave. <laughs> oh, I Eleanor would have kicked his ass. That oh, would Eleanor would have slugged him. Yeah, Eleanor would have Eleanor was too nice. Eleanor was the kind of woman who got other people to deliver punches on her behalf. And apparently Hoover was so horrible to FDR that that at long last was the motivator to move the, to move the inauguration from March 4th to, April, to January 20th. Yeah. You can't say Hoover did nothing. <laughs> technically. Could you elaborate more on that? Uh, what was so uh, vile that he said, I'm doing this two months early? Well, so the one of the big things was that Hoover wanted Roosevelt's support in closing all of the banks. Uh, and Roosevelt was basically like, absolutely not. Like, it's not something that I agree with. Um, And so there was a lot of dissent on economic policy uh, during the early days of the Depression. And so rather than have the country kind of linger on too long in a previous administration, it just got pushed up so that the transition for that presidency would be more seamless. Hmm. 
Sort of like what's going on now, where yeah. we really want Biden <laughs> to get in soon before the current president does any more damage. Yeah, exactly. It really it, it it's really instituted to kind of cut down on like continuing polarization between the part, especially between conflicting parties or opposite parties. Well, and of course, by the by the 30s, you had that wondrous transportation transportation technology, the railroad, which made it a lot faster to get to and from to and from DC. So you didn't need as much time. And of course, now we have airplanes and digital. And it makes you wonder if at some point that transition would be even tighter. Although that seems to be pretty common if if, like if you look at states and uh, because it seems like you need about two, three months to get people in line and try to get people uh, talking to each other so that you can transition from one uh, it, fr- from one administration to another. What a lovely dinner you have set up here in the Oval Office, Mr. Hoover. It is only right you understand the majesty of the job you are about to begin, Mr. My- Roosevelt. <clears throat> My uncle Theodore left many journals of his time in this office, but he certainly did not capture the majesty. Let me roll you up to the table. I'm happy you finally decided to meet with me after all these weeks. Mm, Politics are politics, but uh, economics is what drives the world. What's on the menu? Some of your favorites, no doubt. Caviar, escargot, pheasant under glass. A very fancy spread. Uh, But before we dine, may I be frank? (laughs) I would expect nothing less. Mr. President-elect, you are a... Young man with a great deal of inherited wealth. I'm only eight years younger than you are. And I believe that your inherited wealth has left you a bit unversed in the economic cycles that occur from time to time in this great country. I believe I can engage your discussion with a bit of nourishment. Pass the rolls, please. This new deal you go on about. Yes, what can I do? You're not actually going to go through with all that radicalism, are you? Why wouldn't I? As I said, you are not schooled in the world of economics. Look, I am. The American people have the final say on that, Mr. President. The American people do not understand economics either. Is that why you have so rudely refused my request to pass the rolls? Uh, speaking of rolls, Mr. President-elect, your term does not begin until March. These plans you intend to embark on would be highly disruptive to the trading markets. With all due respect, Mr. President, we could have set up a debate about this like Mr. Lincoln and Mr. Douglas had during the campaign. I would have found it quite edifying. I take this proposal of a bank holiday. It only seems sensible so we can calm people down, much like my stomach, if you would pass me some of that salad. Closing banks will cause panic and a needless drain on the capital markets. There has already been plenty of panic with the stock market fall, if you haven't forgotten. But the stock market needs to make sure the government will let markets run freely. I suspect right now the markets would rather have customers to buy their wares. And having the government employ millions of people? Who else would give people purpose and a buck in their pocket and a square meal? It's practically Bolshevik. (laughs) But seriously, speaking of square meals... Mr. Roosevelt, I am sure you cannot be the kind of class traitor you portrayed yourself to be during your campaign... With such nonsense. You mean the campaign that I told the voters of this country the economic plan I would create for them? My bad, my bad. Hold on. I was trying to clean up that line and I just made it worse. Hold on. What the New Deal would do for them? 
Okay, let's take it from this line. Thank you. Mr. Roosevelt, I am sure you cannot be the kind of class trader you portrayed yourself to be during your campaign with such nonsense. You mean the campaign where I told the voters what the New Deal would do for them? The campaign and platform that hundreds of my fellow Democrats also ran on? The campaign in which those Democrats and myself just thrashed you and your party? That hurts. Is that the nonsense you refer to that I should disavow for the sake of my class? I assure you, prosperity is just around the corner. A slogan that is as empty as my stomach. Now, can we put this discussion aside for a sensible supper and pass the rolls, please? Well, get out of your damn chair and get him yourself! Yeah, that was as immature as it was physically impressive. Do you know how much I spent on that caviar? I don't give a snot how much your caviar is. Besides... If you had done any kind of research, you would have known Eleanor and myself enjoy rib-sticking basic American food. Hot dogs and stews and donuts. I see. I was grotesquely wrong about you. If you thought you could make me throw out my entire economic platform for a pretentious meal that could pay for a month's worth of food for ten needy families. That much, really? I wouldn't know. Precisely. Send for my driver. The evening is over. I am sorry... You shall go what? You have nothing to fear about my appetite. Dearest Eleanor has hired a new cook for the White House. I imagine their first meal will be served by the time I get home. The wait until March will be interminable. It will be twice as long for the rest of us, I can assure you. That kind of reminds me of, so when Hoover, one of my other favorite Hoover FDR stories, when FDR was finally declared like, yes, you are the president elect. And he comes to the White House to, you know, have a transition meeting with some of his uh, staffers. Hoover refuses to meet with him and just has his top aides talk to President elect Roosevelt and his top aides. Like, I refuse to speak to that man is what he tells his aides. But he eventually did. Eventually. Uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Did Hoover think he was going to win again? No, he was just a bitter jerk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think Hoover Hoover felt that he had been the victim of circumstance and that Roosevelt had taken advantage of that circumstance and he was grumpy and bitter about that. Are you saying that a politician can be opportunistic? <laughs> Well, also because Hoover had written about the government being proactive, and then when he becomes president at the moment where the government needed to be proactive, he pulled back with horrific, catastrophic results. Well, so Hoover's increase in, in spending in peacetime was greater than any president in history up until that point. Obviously, that's going to be you know, totally dwarfed. It, it, it was it was totally dwarfed by the need at the moment, and totally dwarfed by the New Deal. I think Hoover ultimately lacked the imagination and lacked the the political or the. He was the you know he, the, as far as any president we've ever had, he was the closest thing to a trained economist, which mm-hmm. you know is is one of the ultimate ironies. But you know, very much in mm. keeping with the economic orthodoxy of the day, his thought was that government intervention in the economy is generally counterproductive. 
Uh, and That's what he's saying in his inaugural address. Very much, unfortunately. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, if, if John Maynard Keynes had come in there and sat down and said, Herbert, no, look at this. You need demand to, you know, make the economy go. I don't know if he would have been able to to change his mind, but you know that's that's kind of the the ground he was stuck in. And then when everything went to crap, despite of that, I think he was very much um, just kind of bitter at the world and 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 took it all on old Franklin. This Justin, the state of California has been called for incumbent President Harry S. Truman, who will begin his second term in January of 1949. We go live now to a press conference with defeated Governor Thomas Dewey. Governor Dewey, Governor Dewey, any word now that you lost the election? Have I lost the election? I, I don't think I have. Yes, sir. It came over the wire about 20 minutes ago. That may be so, but 15 minutes ago, I received this, a photograph of Harry Truman holding a newspaper that reads, Dewey defeats Truman. Right. That was printed before the election was called, when you were still up in the polls. So you're saying that that news would be... Not really news, sir. It's, uh, it, it's fake news, I suppose. Fake news? <laughs> you're fake news. I'm winning this election. Besides, it's not like this picture can speak and tell us whether or not Truman admits defeat. It's not television. Well, they are planning on putting Truman's inauguration on television. First president to do it. I, this, the whole thing is rigged. I, I'm suing. I'm suing everybody. Well, there you have it, Jim. A defeated New Yorker going into a very public shame spiral. Back to you. Thanks. Coming up, does your child have polio or are they just horrible at the jitterbug? Stay tuned and find out. We're still two weeks away from Truman taking the oath of office for a second time, but many are already saying they feel better knowing that a calm hand is at the helm of the national Not government. Not so fast, media. D Thomas Dewey? Where have you been for the last two months? I've been in Ohio, Nevada, and Wisconsin, suing the state governments and recounting votes by hand. How else would you count votes? In certain Appalachian counties, you're allowed to count by foot. Why go through all that trouble? The election's been certified for weeks. They certified it, but they, they, they can't do that. I wasn't ready. Um, we, we don't care if you're ready or not. You're just going to have to... Storm the inauguration and filibuster it until I'm declared president of these United States where I die of breathlessness? Accept it. Too late. Doing my idea. I'm off. Do it away. Well, there you have it. The nation's sorest loser, Thomas Dewey, indulging in his own delusions. Up next... The Girl Scouts of America, a pleasant organization of young women or a breeding ground for communism. Stay tuned. And I, Harry S. Truman, do solemnly swear to uphold the Wait. office of- Tom Dewey? He looks like a hobo who's been awake for two weeks. You've got a lot of nerve coming here, Dewey. I have proof of voter fraud. Really? This I gotta see. Here's a mail-in ballot signed by one P. Herman Milligan, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And here's Mr. Milligan's signature on personal correspondence. The signatures don't match, so I win! So? Who cares? What? But, but, but it's fraud. Actual fraud! But that's one vote. You would need, and um, this is just a random guess, roughly 11,870 votes to overturn that result. But... But fraud. 
don't you want to tear apart democracy over this? Not really. Yeah, we're all somewhere between finding you sad and finding you annoying. But nobody's on your side. I'm not even sure you have a side. But you people wanted this. You made this happen. That's why all you mugs with your cameras and your fedoras kept asking me questions. You mean reporting on you? Look, man, we don't pick the Hindenburgs. We just show up and yell, oh, the humanity. But, but, but. Tom, come on now. Give it up. You put up a hell of a fight, but you lost fair and square. Don't embarrass yourself now. I guess you're right. I, I guess I should go back home. I, I hope New York's still there. I, I left the governor's office empty since November. Phew. That was a close one. What do you mean? Oh, I have ways of dealing with opponents who won't surrender. Um, well, all of this talk is wonderfully highfalutin, but let's, let's, can we talk pettiness? Because one <laughs> of the things that we, I, I think in terms of modern transitions, one of the more delicious ones was the Carter to Reagan transition to the point where like good old our dear nancy reagan a, an elegant woman she oh. was so just wanted to get into the white house so much she got offended that the carters actually stayed there until the inauguration day itself that's a pretty good amount of petty but does she win i might be able to beat it <laughs> you go for it. well it's Grant coming from Johnson, and it's uh, it's this. He's the first one to, I think we mentioned it, but uh, Jackson and Van Buren start the tradition that the outgoing and incoming presidents will ride together to the Capitol in a yeah. carriage and later an automobile. Grant said, I refuse to ride in a carriage with that man, which is a weird, like, <laughs> and I get that you don't respect him, but like, this is, it's going to be like 10 minutes. Just ride it out. Uh, so they no, and this is wild. Congress pitched a plan. There was like party negotiations. They said, well, there could be two carriages that pass in the street. And finally, Johnson said, no, I will stay at the White House. So he stayed in inauguration on inauguration day until noon. He vacated at noon, but was signing bills into law. Speaking of trying to secure your legacy last minute. Wait, wait, he didn't veto every single law that was passed? You would think, right? <laughs> I think I think he had tried that so much, he thought like, well, as long as I'm still here, I might as well try approving one law. Uh, but the other thing then was, as they're waiting uh, before that, I guess, after the election, Johnson has had a 60th birthday. He's throwing a party around that time for children, for his grandkids. And Grant refused to let his children go. <laughs> like very publicly. Said like I won't, and you're thinking like, well, that's just punishing them. I don't think. I don't think. Grant could take a cannon fodder fire, and he could take bullets, but he couldn't spend ten minutes in a carriage with Johnson. Well, he drank heavily and had migraines. Are you talking about Johnson or Grant? Grant. I could describe any 19th century president except. I mean. I kind of don't blame Grant. I I, I kind of hate Andrew Johnson. I would, but um, yeah, no, yeah. I'm with Grant there. I don't think I'd want to spend ten minutes with Johnson either. That's fair. Oh, the fist fight would be epic, though. <laughs> oh, that would have been yeah, yeah. I assume that's a tradition that will not be upheld this this go around either. The old man fist fight? fight. I don't know. That would be interesting. well. We would love to see that. Oh yeah. <gasps> 
Anyway, I don't, that, think, I don't think there's any way that Trump attends the inauguration. No, I don't think there's any way that. He's no, there. there's still no. an open question as to whether he'll actually come back to D.C. I tell you, on a beautiful morning like this, it's hard to believe that America has abandoned me. I'm sorry, Rosalind. I know you love living here. Oh, Jimmy, I married you for better or for worse. It doesn't matter where we live. Why, if you built a house for us with your bare hands, I'd be happy as long as I'm with you. Who needs the love and respect of my fellow citizens when I have you? <laughs> Rosalind, I'm starting to feel lust in my heart. Jimmy, you are incorrigible. Hey, now, I'm a lame duck, not a limp one. <laughs> what could... It's probably just Ham Jordan with some bad news. Uh, keep quiet, and maybe the Jordan will depart. <laughs> Start by painting the walls red, white, and blue. Make sure it's Valentino red. Nancy Reagan, what are you doing in our bedroom? Well, this is the White House, isn't it? In case you haven't heard the news, darling, my husband beat yours. Mrs. Reagan, a peaceful transition of power is reliant upon cooperation and consent of both parties. I'll handle this, Jimmy. Mrs. Reagan, we're still going to be living here until January 20th. I know. Try to stay out of the workman's way. Ted, Angel, see if there's enough room for all of my gowns. Why is that man going into the closet? Ted's an interior designer, darling. The closet is his natural habitat. Hardy har har. We'll probably need to knock down a wall to make space for your wardrobe, Mrs. Reagan. Fine, fine. Start the demo over there after you toss out that hideous Ansel Adams print. Mrs. Reagan, Jimmy hung that picture himself. <laughs> Jimmy hung. Those are words you don't hear often. Mrs. Reagan, my failure to alleviate the malaise in this country does not entitle you to impugn my masculinity. Hush, Jimmy. Yes, Mrs. Yes. Reagan, who taught you to treat people this way? 50 million voters, darling. That's who. Uh, Ted, Angel, take this furniture to Goodwill and find me some Queen Anne pieces, would you? Speaking of queens, someone in this room is sure acting like one. I know, darling. Ted could set our fire alarms, but he's the best in the business. Hardy har har. The painters are short on drop cloths, Mr. and Mrs. Carter. I'm afraid we'll need this quilt. Hey! Hey! hey. Oh, my God! How shocking! How vulgar! Now, Mrs. Reagan, I hasten to remind you, Rosalind and I are a married couple, and what we do in the privacy of our bedroom is... I'm talking about those flannel pajamas. Good Lord! But they keep us warm! That's what fossil fuels are for, darling, despite what your husband says. Ted, Angel, get Jeffro and... Ellie May here, out of those rags and into something silk. Take their measurements, too, so they don't buy off the rack for the inauguration. There'll be props, but at least they'll be presentable props. Mrs. Reagan, although I've had my difficulties in office and the voters have delivered a utter and complete rejection of my policies, it is still a severe overreach for you to treat us like hostages in our own home. Much like the hostages Jimmy, in Iran. Get the again in it. Nancy <clears throat> Reagan, get the hell out of our bedroom or else. Or else what, darling? Or else my steel magnolia here is going to whip your ass. 
All right, all right, darling. But remember, the networks are canceling the Waltons and replacing it with something more appropriate for the 80s. They're thinking of calling it Dynasty or maybe Lifestyles of the Rich and Shameless. Now that was the man I married, a fighter. Uh, Anything for you, baby. If you'd shown half that much balls when you were president, we'd be staying here in the White House instead of moving back to that damn peanut farm. Uh, Hey, what what, what happened to for better or for worse? I didn't know how much worse. Hey, Ted, is that Gucci you're wearing? Hardy har har. It's Armani. What do you think this is, 1979? We'll see. Anyway, back to the pettiness. Like, who's who's your? What's your favorite petty transition story or story? Who's your top three petty transitions, <laughs> Chelsea? <laughs> um, I don't know that I have three uh, off the top of my head, uh, but I one of my absolute favorites is um, the outgoing Clinton administration staffers took every W from the keyboards. Yes, did that actually happen? I thought that was apocryphal. I did too. I, that's what I thought. The government accounting office, or the, yeah, ju- anyway, that office assessed $14,000 worth of damages, and most of it was uh, pranks, including the... Wow. Uh, yep. Or without the W's. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so I guess to reinforce James's point, two... Uh, inauguration or transition stories that have always kind of tugged on my heartstrings um, are the two uh, Bush in, uh, transitions, right? The George H.W. writing the little note to Clinton uh, and then George W. Bush uh, inviting all of the past presidents to sit down mm-hmm. and have lunch with Obama. You know, I, and believe me, I harbor no, uh, toasty warm feelings for either of the bushes but at least they understood the delicacy of the transition time oh my gosh is that fagan oh, okay uh he, they understood the delicacy of the transition time and were and were as helpful and uh were as helpful as they could be in to the next folks who were coming in, even though they were of opposite parties. Mm-hmm. Well, the Bushes were old school wasps. They knew how to do things. They had a good, <laughs> you know, I mean, they didn't have Reagan's talent for the symbolic gesture, but they had the talent for gesture and the respect for tradition. They, yeah. they, they might have shredded norms while in office, but, you know, on a superficial yes. level. Exactly. They were very nice guys. Very traditionalists. I mean, given given their family history, and yes. and and I'm sure W again, knowing the historical weight of the Obama presidency, you know, and and it. I mean, it does seem like be, there was so with you sort of juxtapose that with again what's going on right now, where there's this glee, this sort of gleeful disrespect for all of the norms. But for a, you know, for a very selfish, for a very selfish end. But again, what what I'm hearing is that it seems like it's become a tradition that outgoing presidents leave a short note in the Oval Office desk, welcoming their successor to their new job. 
Ronald Reagan left George H.W. Bush a note on Sandra Boynton's stationery with a picture of turkeys crawling on top of an elephant. Georgie, you'll have moments when you want to use this particular stationery. <laughs> Those gosh darn turkeys are so cute. Nancy, who, who am I writing this letter to? Oh, okay, let's, let's just put this in the drawer. Oh, look, there's still some jelly bellies in here. George H.W. Bush then did the same for Bill Clinton. Your success is our country's success. I am rooting hard for you. Read my lips. No new bushes. Bill Clinton was similarly gracious to his successor, his predecessor's son, telling him, You lead a proud, decent, good people. And from this day, you are president of all of us. Now, where can I stash those keyboard W's? Even George W. Bush penned a heartwarming letter to Barack Obama, promising that even though there would be trying moments... You have an almighty God to comfort you, a family who loves you, and a country that is pulling for you, including me. Ouch! <laughs> I gotta stop slamming this drawer on my fingers. And even though 2016 was a contentious, some would say ugly, campaign... President Obama put partisanship aside to tell Donald Trump. All of us, uh, regardless of party, should hope for expanded prosperity and security during your tenure. Yeah, like that'll never happen. Oh. Oh. Michelle and I wish you and Melania the very best as you embark on this great adventure. And know that we stand ready to help in any ways in which we can. Uh, good luck and Godspeed. B.O. Okay, that last line was for the rest of us, but Donald doesn't have to know. This leads us to our current situation. What type of letter will Donald Trump leave for his successor? Will he hold to the tradition of his predecessors? Okay, now time to write the traditional letter to the new incoming administration. <clears throat> Dear President, I know you are going to do the best job of any president of any time. You'll be greater than Washington. Who knows? Maybe greater than Lincoln. So many people voted for you. Biden will certainly be surprised to find such a gracious letter greeting Biden? <laughs> I am the next administration. I'm writing this letter to me. <laughs> Won't I be surprised when I come in tomorrow and find my letter hidden in my desk drawer? Now, let's get ready for my next inauguration. Freeze! This is the police. Don't move. Time to go. The discussions and talkbacks you will hear on today's episode were recorded on December 30th, 2020. So we know there have been some news events that have happened since then. There is a lot of talk that the norms that are being violated now need to be turned into some kind of enactable laws that can be enforced in order to prevent th what is happening now from happening again. Agree or disagree, historians, please speak. You know, though... You can have all the laws you want. I mean, we have laws against perjury in Congress, but if no one enforces them, what's the point? Mm -hmm. 
That's why I'm hoping that when Biden comes in, they'll bring back perjury is a crime. I don't think that's too much to ask for. He's the wrong guy for that. <laughs> well, because he's also worried about the the norm of, well, even if the previous president was crooked, we can't charge him with crimes because yeah. that would be bad. True. For whom? The for the country. country. Yeah. We have to move ahead. We have to look forward from Ford to we don't to, want to, to Obama. Be, they just ignored. Want, we don't want to set the precedent of prosecuting other presidents because then they could prosecute other presidents for being the president. And then you yeah, have a yeah, we still anymore. live in a country that requires evidence. A country uh, of laws. Yes. Um, I mean, if we didn't, Giuliani would have won his, what, 43, 42 cases in front of the 60, court. To try. 60. 60. Plus. Oh, I'm and so counting. behind. Oh, yeah. um, and but counting. You, you, know, oh, counting. you could bring the president up on charges, but you've got to have some kind of, you know, evidence to do that. Some, not and because I want to charge you, but because there's some basis to that. And even when there is a basis for evidence, basis for a charge, the president's going to skate anyway. We had tapes, we had vice, even the vice president skated on acting like a Chicago ward healing, ward healer and an alderman collecting envelopes of cash in the White House. Mm -hmm. But they just let him get away with, you know, pleading, pleading guilty and paying his back taxes. This is Spiro Agnew. Whose name is no, Johnny Carson? But, but part of that night. was because, wait a minute, if we get rid of Spiro, we can get rid of Nixon, which is kind of what happened. James. No, that's exactly James, what Elliot Richardson was Two thoughts I've got here. One is, okay, so when you have a president who leaves office and they're, you know, under a cloud of scandal and they're succeeded by someone from the same party, like Ford, okay, well, you keep a lot of the same people. You know, Ford, Ford walks into the White House that day and everybody who's there is people who Nixon hired including whoever the heck was the attorney general at that point after Nixon fired like was it Richardson? Um, Richardson Saturday was Night Massacre. Okay. Yeah. He was massacred. I thought. Okay. So at that, you know, at that, you know, the, the president is not supposed to tell the justice department what to do, uh, but they do. Um, <laughs> and so at that point, the justice department is not going to be interested in prosecuting the guy who, they owe a lot of their jobs to who just left office. That's not a very nice thing to do to someone that you <laughs> ostensibly liked, agreed with, and, and worked for. And then when the new party takes over, yeah, you could make some political hay from prosecuting the outgoing person, but you spend a lot of political capital doing it. That becomes the news story. It's not your agenda. It's the prosecution of the guy who just left office. And so when people come into office, they don't want to spend the political capital to go after the old guy. The old guy's yesterday's news. They they want to look forward. They want to do their thing. So it doesn't really work out to anyone's political interest to prosecute somebody who is politically finished. Um, and and I, when this has happened, whether it was George W. Bush, whether it was Richard Nixon, I don't think anybody saw these people as having significant political lives following their presidencies. So, although, although in this case, Trump himself sees himself as having a political life, or if not him, his kids. Oh, 
And, so, and I argue that we would want to put their heads on a spike, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, of course, well, that's what as, a, deter as a deterrent to keep future presidents or anyone else from trying these same shenanigans. They'll just I mean, try a better cover-up, Sylvia. <laughs> Chelsea, well, you've been quiet through all this. Oh, I was just, I, it's funny. I was actually just going to um, echo James's comment by quoting one, uh, a very memorable line of Thomas Jefferson's first inauguration. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists, right? <laughs> Even though he, there was a rather icy uh, transition from his former BFF, uh, John <laughs> Adams, you know, he, he was really focused on reconciliation, honestly. You know, he, um, uh, pardoned most of the people who were involved in who were being prosecuted under the avian and sedition acts he you know was like nope that's old news like we're just gonna start anew so i i guess that you know just to reflect what james was saying but also to kind of loop back to you know the original icy inauguration um that we were talking about we'll give it another minute this is ridiculous. It's fourth period civics in 10 minutes, whether we're at school or online. Well, some people's parents have to work on Zoom at the same time as class. People have to juggle. Well, that's why I make sure nobody else is on our Wi-Fi when we have class. How do you do that? I change the password every morning and don't tell my family until class is done. Well, that's creative. Hello, Patrick. Hello, Miss Sandy. Uh, sorry I'm late. I had to get my pencil. You're online. What do you need a pencil for? Some of us like to learn when we're not on the computer, Sally. How do you brown nose from a screen? We all have our talents. So, I wanted to see the two of you before the regular class begins, because your group project on the presidential transition is late. That's right, Miss Sandy. As you know, I was assigned to be the new president, and Patrick, of course, was assigned to be the president that was supposed to step aside. And I remain ready to step aside just as soon as we know I actually lost the election. Okay, you two. What are you talking about? That was literally the exercise. It was nothing official, just the presumption Miss Sandy presented. What else do you need? Please, you to wait wait who's trying to log on oh that would be my classmate clay who is working with me on this project what can you please let him on miss sandy only because of my curiosity hey, hello clay hey hey clay hey uh, clay what exactly is your role in all of this I'm here as Patrick's legal representative to dispute the results of this election on the grounds that to declare a victor, there is a need for a preponderance of... Preponderance. Thank you. A preponderance of votes and official confirmations that my client actually lost before the transition process begins. I was well within my rights to do so. It's a school assignment. You have no rights. Exactly. Without rights, I need proof. Ms. Sandy, I have found enormous amounts of evidence of hundreds of thousands of votes thrown into bodies of water by mailmen who live in Democrat cities. So I have advised my client that there can be no preponderance of evidence and that, in fact, he likely won the election. 
You're just trying to aggravate. <laughs> Everyone is on mute until we pay attention and respect each other. Yeah, got it? Understand? Ready? Okay. Miss Sandy. I've done a lot of research, Miss Sandy. I'm happy to forward it to you. Can you forward it to me? It's on my laptop at home. I'm calling from my phone, so... I see. It's not my fault that Sally hasn't won. If this is just you being lazy and Clay going to some really weird websites. Enough. Clay, I did not assign you to this team, so you have no business being involved. That's not very democratic. This is a school, not a democracy. Seems like a weird lesson to teach in a civics class, but... Okay, and any information you may have was likely not from recognized scholarly sources. Anyway. As far as the school industrial complex would tell us. Okay, for the last time, show your work then. I have to get the passwords from my friend Q. Oh, enough. I will speak to you after my meeting with Pat Sally and Patrick. I want to speak to your parents as well. I will be reaching out to them. I'll be back later today. They were in Washington for the last couple of days. I have some cool video from the house chambers I can show you. Oh, if you dear want. God, no. No, please, get off the call. Now. Okay. Huh? I would strongly suggest you not interact with Clay right now, Patrick. He's staying with us until his parents drive back or get well, out of jail. Yeah, let's try to focus on the assignment now. I have two Google Slide presentations and a YouTube video. Oh, three sources you made up, Sally? You can't be a preponderance all by yourself. I can't wait for the FBI to break down your bedroom door. Okay, enough. Sally, you will get full credit for the actual work you did on the presidential transition assignment, as usual. Patrick, you have until tomorrow. But, but, but I've been occupied? Get to work. Thank you, Miss Sandy. I still want to protest. Well, here's, okay, so I, mean, I don't know if this will be the last thing we talk about, but this is something that kind of popped up as we were chatting, because it's like the one bit of magic that seems to be part of, and that is, how the hell does one family move out of the White House and move into, the other family move in, in that it's like a tighter frame than the week the Queer Eye guys have to <laughs> change all of those, and yet somehow it happens. How does that happen? Watch the. Yeah, I mean, you start packing early. Watch the West Wing <laughs> episode about this. <laughs> I think Clara Lou Hoover started packing before the November election. <laughs> Lou Henry Hoover, excuse me. Why am I turning her into a Dr. Seuss character? And and keep in mind that the there's less to move than you might think because you know normally when you move you bring all your plates and your furniture with you, but the plates and the furniture belong to the people of the United States, so. They stay put. It is a furnished apartment. Yeah. Oh. Pretty much you're just bringing your clothes and toiletries. And photos of your family. Mm. Yeah, but they also, but they have to disinfect from COVID for this one. Yeah. Which could, which could take a while. And we don't know how much will be trashed on the way out the door. Oh, it's going to be like a four flip Get you to deposit back on that. Melania uh -huh. <laughs> is going to be digging her rose bushes out of the rose garden, taking those with her. Let us hope those were monstrosities. I have to, I have to imagine the Trump White House right now that like 
the staffers are like secretly putting their like potted plants and their personal scissors in the like the little cardboard box that's under their desk. And then every now and then the chief of staff walks by and says, Oh, we're not leaving. Put that stuff back on your desk. <laughs> I Put think that head to... back next to your computer. I'll finish by saying, I have a very simple dream for this transition period. It involves Eric dangling from the bottom of a helicopter as the fan Trumps try to leave the country. Is that such a horrible dream to have? I ask you. Where would they go, though, I'm that thinking, they couldn't be extradited from? Abu Dhabi. Ooh. Saudi Arabia. Quat Qatar. Uh, I don't know. They like, they like our weaponry. They would that probably give him back if they for a weapons deal. Why hasn't anyone said Russia yet? Because supposedly to, Putin, Putin has to go to Parkinson's. Russia. He's and, no longer a useful idiot. Oh, for Putin. He also owes too much money to those oligarchs, like... That's a bad place to go. And Putin supposedly has Parkinson's, so he may be on the way out, and he's not the only oligarch in town. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. But, we'll, do, but we'll be doing our oligarch episode later. But until then, please tune in for further mm. episodes, special and otherwise. Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you, James. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Pocola, Sandy Bakowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Walton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production of the Electables podcast is by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. The Electables concept was created by Patrick J. Riley. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.com, who is the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the electables, visit DB Comedy's website, dbcomedychicago.com. Go to DB Comedy's episodes page at simplecast.com and follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy and Twitter at DB Comedy Chicago. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to like. <laughs>